Thanks, Pastor Lorenzo, and good morning, Collective. As uh, we are here for uh, what, what we could call the um, final approach in the story of justice. Uh, we've got just one more week after this in what has been our summer series, looking at a biblical theology of the topic of justice. That is, how does the whole story of Scripture, this whole book from Genesis to Revelation, talk about the issue of justice? And so what we've been doing over the past uh, 11 weeks now has been uh, seeking to develop a definition of biblical justice that we can then carry within our own lives, understanding what's going there. So we've been kind of using the, the definition of, of biblical justice being putting right what is wrong as grounded in God's character, as revealed in God's word, and as fulfilled in God's son, Jesus Christ. And so this week, what we're gonna be looking at is the function of justice, the function of justice. That is, what is the purpose of justice as done by the community of justice, the new family of justice that is the church of Jesus Christ. And, and what we've been developing is we have to see that this week, like every week, because it's a story flows from what we looked at with Pastor Lorenzo last week. The function of justice flows from our uh, identity as the new family of justice. Everything Lorenzo talk, Pastor Lorenzo talked about last week. Our uh, activity in the function of justice flows from our identity as the new family of justice. And then the week before that, uh, and all of those things, our identity and our activity in justice flow from the victory of justice that was achieved through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. So again, just to summarize this, as we set up today, our activity, the function of justice, flows from our identity, that is being the new people of God's family, that justice. Those things flow out of the victory of justice, which is the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we called the fountain of justice three weeks ago. And the reality is, is that we can't pick and choose. Throughout the scriptures, we find that if you're someone that's received the justice, the victory of Jesus, then you are a person who has also received that identity of the new family of justice. And to be someone who's received the victory and the identity is someone that walks in that activity. Or as James puts it in his letter, uh, uh, chapter two, verse 26, that faith without works is dead. You having an, claiming some identity in uh, the family of justice without having the function of justice is something that it's, it's a dead faith. Now, this relationship, of our identity, of our the victory, and then our activity is present throughout all the New Testament. One of the places that it is most prevalent is in the letter of Romans. Uh, the first letter of, uh, that we have kind of as we move into the letters in the New Testament is this, the biggest one called Romans. And justice is, uh, justice is a pervasive and central issue to the entire letter of Romans. It's just, it's constant throughout the whole letter. And that can sometimes be lost in translation as we talked about a few weeks ago, because as we through, read through Romans in our English translation, we come across words like righteous and righteousness and justify and justification and just. These are all one word or word group really in the Greek that Paul's writing in. Over 76 times in his letter, he uses this justice word group throughout the letter. More than any other New Testament book, Paul is constantly talking about justice in this letter. This is so prevalent that, uh, well, I'll just uh, quote from uh, Dr. Douglas Harnick in his book, Resurrecting Justice, where he writes, 
Justice is the central and pervasive theme of the letter of Romans. The justice of God, the just ruler, the just person, the way of justice in the world. We would therefore not be wrong to call Romans a treatise on justice. Now, Dr. Douglas Harnick, who wrote this, um, it's actually forthcoming, this book called Resurrecting Justice. It's kind of his look at Romans through the lens of this justice language and what comes forward. It's not coming out yet, comes out next month. Uh, he actually, I reached out to him this past week and he uh, gave me a uh, advanced version of it. If you, that's the way to my heart is just sending me free books. So I got the PDF and I was able to read over it and use that in my prep this week. But man, I would recommend it to each and every one of you. Maybe you think that, that I'm wrong in seeing justice in Romans. You, you just spend some time with Dr. Uh, Douglas Harnick and he'll, he'll help you out. Uh, you could pre-order that book, 10% uh, uh, off through the publisher IVP. So I'll just recommend, recommend that. That's my plug. He gave me a free version of it. So I have to do that. And then actually him and I are emailing. We might be doing a little podcast uh, sometime within the next uh, week or two of just kind of me asking questions. And so uh, keep an eye out for that. We'll obviously post about that. Now, back to the whole point of what he's making. What I'm making here as we get into the text today is that Romans is all about justice. It's all about the justice of God at work in the world. And, and that's what the first 11 chapters of the whole letter of Romans are all about. It's all about how the fountain of justice, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the victory of Jesus has created a new family of justice. It's given us a new identity. Everything that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. Today, we're gonna to look at, and we're in chapters 12 through 16, Paul details the new family of justice, their function within their public Roman lives. That is their activity. So what we're gonna look at today is the first two chapters within that section, Romans 12 and 13. And a little bit differently, instead of going a couple of verses at a time, I'm gonna read the whole thing uh, with you. And so we have it all together in once. And then we're gonna make our way back through and kind of point a couple of big things out in the text. So look with me in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Settle in. We're going to read two chapters. They're not super long. And, uh, and have the Bible. You'll see it there on the screens. Or maybe you have your phone or your, your physical Bible there for the really holy ones. I'm just kidding. But seriously, uh, we're going to read this and then I'll pray for us and then we'll get in. So the Apostle Paul, his treatise on justice. What does he say for the local church? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one in Christ and individually we are members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in their teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Yes, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, respect to who respect is owed, revenue to whom respect or revenue is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. So owe nothing to anyone except love to each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and any other commandment. They're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we hear and hope to receive today your word through the apostle Paul. God, we find ourselves in a similar time as the Roman church of um, political confusion and injustices. Uh, We find ourselves uh, confused about what it means to be the people of God. And so our desire in this time is to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to have our minds transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we might discern 
what is good and acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And so God, my prayer is that you might open our ears, that you might guide my words. Help us today to receive what it means to be your church and what is the function of justice as we move into the world. In your name we pray, amen. Well, there's a lot here. Uh, we just read through two chapters uh, of, of Romans. And so uh, what we're gonna be doing today is looking at uh, Paul's thought here and what's going on. Now, what originally started as a seven point sermon and you, uh, we got it down to three and you can thank Pastor Lorenzo for helping me through with that. And uh, a lot of that came as, as noticing the fact that what Paul is doing is he is working within a, uh, a bit of a, a parallel structure here. And, and as you follow that kind of sandwiching parallel structure, you can see that he kind of begins and ends with the same thing. He then moves on to kind of the same thing, but then, you know, almost ends with the same thing. And at the middle, he's kind of talking about a bunch of the same stuff. It's kind of parallelism is the fancy word for it. As he sandwiches the, a bunch of pieces together, as a way of constructing it. And so instead of having six or seven points, um, we've got it down to three by following that. And so the big three that you can see within this parallel structure is first that justice is how we worship God. Justice is how we worship God. Second, justice is how we love our neighbors as ourselves. And then justice is how we overcome evil with good. And so uh, you can see the little like map there of kind of how this plays out is Paul opens and ends with talking about justice as our worship to God. He then moves and then second to last, then talks again about how justice being how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And then in the middle, he spends most of his time dealing with how justice being how we overcome evil with good. So there you go. It's all right there. Um, we, we can go home, right? <laughs> We're not done yet. Um, the notes for uh, today, if you wanna follow along, those are currently in the chat. So you can grab those. And so instead of following through and having this be a six point sermon where we do worship, love our neighbor, you know, overcome evil, love our neighbor, worship with God. We're actually gonna start at the top, or I guess you could say the bottom, the middle of the sandwich in overcome evil with good. And then we're gonna move to loving our neighbor and worship God. So we're actually gonna move right to the middle. What you could argue, Paul, based off this parallelism is trying to put our attention on, and then we're gonna move ourselves outward. So we're gonna actually end in the beginning and the ending, I guess you could say. So um, as we go through this today, I'm just gonna encourage you, have your Bibles open if you can. If you got the Bible app or you got your physical Bible, follow with me as we jump in. First, let's look at how justice, justice is how we overcome evil with good. If you look back with me in verse 16 of chapter 12, Paul calls for Christians to not be haughty, not be haughty. And it's not to, what he's just saying, don't exalt yourself, get off your high horse. Get off your high horse and to do what? Associate with the lowly, associate with the lowly. Now, what's going on in associate with the lowly? Is this mean just be friends with people that are humble? Like, yeah, you could argue that's a good thing to do, but what's Paul actually saying? This word associate in the Greek that he's writing with, you're gonna hear that a lot today because I want, we're gonna go deep into what Paul's actually saying here. This associate word is one of responsibility. Um, it actually has its root in the idea of carrying something. And so Paul says to not just have be friends with the lowly, but to associate with them, to care, to have responsibility for them. But who are the lowly? As you follow the word lowly, as it's translated in the Greek in the Old Testament, and then it's connection into the uh, uh, Greek Old Testament, it is connected and translated with words like downcast, afflicted, poor, needy, diseased, vulnerable and oppressed. So right here in verse 16, the apostle Paul says, you Christian, get off your high exalted horse 
where you're so clean and apart from all of the dirt and muck of the world. And I want you to take responsibility for the lowly, the needy, the poor, the oppressed. I mean, this is good Samaritan stuff right here. And what this looks like is in verse 15, he says, empathetic friendship, that you weep with them when they're weeping. You rejoice with them when they rejoice. Justice associating with the lowly means that we do not explain away the tears and pain of the lowly, of the vulnerable, of the oppressed. Similarly, he calls for us to give thought to do what is honorable, what is good in the sight of everyone. In verse 18, calling for us, as much as it depends on us to live peaceably with all. And this live peaceably is not that Paul's saying, hey, don't rock the boat. You guys kind of just, you know, status quo. You guys just survive. What he's saying is, I want you as far as it depends on you with all the muscle and strength that you got, make peace with all, be it, make be a peacemaking person with everyone around you. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't spend a lot more time necessarily getting into associating with the lowly. You know, he's, he's got the whole Old Testament to do that for us, right? But what he wants to do is he's gonna bring now how justice applies to those who don't like peace, who don't want peace to be made, who don't want to associate with the lowly, but actually continue to oppress or use and abuse them. What do we do with the people that don't want peace made? Paul applies the gospel in profound ways. In verse 14, 14, he says that Christians are to bless and not curse their enemy. In verse 17, he calls for us not to repay evil with evil. In verse 19, he says that Christians, we are not people who avenge ourselves. That is that the church, Christians, we do not carry out retributive justice on those that oppress. The opposite is true in verse 20. He says that we feed them. We give them something to drink. We care for them, even them. See, this is something profound that Paul is doing here. Paul is applying the commands of justice that we've seen throughout the Old Testament for the vulnerable and for those within the community to even being given to your enemy, to the unjust person. This mirrors Jesus's commands in Matthew 5, 44, where he calls for us to love our enemy, to care for them, to pray for our enemy, pray for those who persecute you. I mean, this, I mean, this is countercultural words that Paul has here uh, over and against what we're living in, not just what, for them originally hearing these words, but for us today in a cancel culture. Where for Paul says, those who, who don't seem to have it figured out, those who maybe they're blind to the way that they're propagating injustice within their lives or within the world, or maybe they're outright volitionally doing something. Paul says, I actually want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. I want you to do restorative justice toward them. It's profound. It's challenging. I didn't want to read that this week as much as you don't want to hear it right now. But Paul gives us two reasons for this command being true. The first in verse 19 is he says that as we do this, by not avenging ourselves, we entrust vengeance to God as the just judge who's gonna do what he needs to do about it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God asks us, to not pick up the sword, to not take vengeance for ourselves, but to entrust it to God, that he is the just judge and that he will have the final word. That's not the only reason though. He also gives us this strange one in verse 20. Do you notice that when we read that over, that little weird line in verse 20? What does he say? 
you know, you, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world is Paul getting at? Well, Paul's pulling from a multifaceted Jewish idiom throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Um, what's it mean? We could get into that but we're just gonna talk about what it actually means because we've got a lot to cover today. So Dr. Bird summarizes, what does heat burning coals on your head mean? Here's a quote from Dr. Bird's commentary on Romans. He says this, by showing kindness to our adversaries, we are giving them the opportunity to change. Showing unexpected or undeserved kindness, we can make our opponents into friends, break down hatred, prejudice, and ignorance. However, for those who do not change, who wish to continue their hatred, such kindness does have a negative impact on them, piling coals of fire on their head, symbols of God's judgment. And then he, he um, quotes there in the quote, a handful of verses that you can go back and you know, counter and see what, what he's pulling from. So the idea behind heaping burning coals is that it's a multi-part work that it potentially gives them the option to wake up to repent, to acknowledge that sometimes it is generosity and grace and love when it's undeserved that wakes us up to our need to change. But if we don't change, if people don't change, they're hard-hearted. Paul says that your generosity and grace to them when they don't deserve it actually adds to the consequences and judgment and wrath that they're going to receive from God. Um, so there you go. Paul says, you don't pick up the sword. That belongs to God for him to dole out as he sees fit. Just a, on this, um, John Tyson, the pastor in New York City, comments on specifically this idea of generosity towards those that are against you as being a potential way to win them over. He says this, instead of just bashing people for believing what they do, I found it helpful to ask what about the belief, or you could say, you know, if we're talking about politics or whatever, what about that appeals to them? What about that meets a need that they have? What about that resonates or addresses a frustration? Listening often opens doors to persuasion. Attacking leads to defensiveness and hardening. Love for our enemies, giving restorative justice to those who don't deserve it, leaves room for their repentance, what you could call reparative justice, or it adds consequences to the already coming wrath of God, retributive justice. Now I'm gonna be detailing God's coming justice and wrath a little bit more next week in the future of justice. But uh, before we keep going, verse 21 then is the center point of what the whole kind of Paul sandwich that he's building here. It kind of, everything builds up to and flows around this one middle piece. And it's specifically verse 21, where he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the work of justice is that as there is evil and brokenness in the world is that we overcome it by administering justice to the best of our abilities, making peace as best as we can, associating with the lowly. And we refuse to pick up evil for the sake of advancing what we determine as being just or righteous. Do not be conquered by evil, but overcome with good. Just like your King Jesus did through his cross. Just like Jesus did through his death. Now, here we get into the fun part of today. This will be the one that I'll probably get some emails about is many of you likely with, with the Romans, you hear what Paul says, okay, that's great, you know, whatever. That's really, actually, that's really difficult and challenging. And I don't know how I'm gonna live that way, but I guess I'm gonna ask the spirit to help me. But Paul, what about those in power, you might ask? For the Romans, what about Caesar? 
what about the large scale injustices that we're not just dealing with somebody that steals from me, but we're dealing with poverty and corruption and oppression and slavery and organized crime and human trafficking and racism and bombings and economic sanctions and siege warfare and torture. How do we overcome evil with good when evil happens on that magnitude? Do we, in that case, avenge ourselves? In that case, pick up the sword and riot and revolt? Or do we run for the hills and create our little communes out in the forest and in the desert? Paul is tracking with the question, which is exactly where he goes in the beginning of chapter 13. Now, there is, and uh, even for me, has been a whole sermon on Romans 13, one through seven. We're gonna try to make some good time out of this. By specifically trying to answer those big questions that Paul asks by asking three smaller questions of what Paul means within this text. So the first being, what does Paul mean by calling the governing authorities God's servant And then from that, what does Paul mean by calling Christians to subjection? And then third, what does Paul mean by saying, do not resist? Governing authorities, what does Paul mean? What does he mean by submit? What does he mean by not resisting? So first, God's servant. He says throughout this that that the governing authorities are God's servant, that their authority is one that's been instituted by God, that they've been appointed by God, that they're even the ministers of God. So what is Paul saying here? The blanket reading is that Paul is not giving wholesale approval to Rome. The the Messiah that that Paul is writing about and preaching was crucified under Rome. Paul himself would be beheaded by a Roman empire. Peter, the apostle, would be crucified upside down alongside his wife underneath uh, the emperor Nero, who is uh, early into his reign when the letter of of Romans was written. Christians would be fed to lions. They would be uh, crucified and lit on fire to light the emperor Nero's backyard. He clearly is not giving wholesale um, approval of governing authorities. Rather, I think the opposite is at hand, that he is acknowledging that those in governing positions of authority have a high responsibility, that they've been entrusted with something in God's creation and world, and with it, a higher form of judgment that they're gonna be held to. A helpful connection about this is when Paul in his later writings talks about the qualifications for elders in the church or for pastors. You could argue that they too are God's servant. Pastors, we've been instituted by God. We've been appointed by God. We're literally as ministers of God. When Paul gives his qualifications of what pastors and elders are in 1 Timothy and in Titus, he's not saying this is who anybody who has the title of pastor inherently automatically is. Rather, by those qualifications, he is saying, this is how you judge and how God will judge whether or not those pastors, those servants, those elders have been faithful to the responsibility and the power and privilege they've been given. In James chapter three, he says, not many of you should be teachers. That's often used synonymously with elders because we who teach will be judged more strictly. To be God's servant is not a blanket wholesale approval. You can get to go do whatever you want now. Rather, to be God's servant means that you have been entrusted with something that God is going to hold you accountable to your use of. And so I think the same sort of thing is at work here when Paul calls the governing authorities, God's servant, instituted by God. Paul is describing the ideal, the just ruler within a non-Christian Roman government system. He's not thinking about, you know, giving us an all time, all cases, historical case for governing authorities. He's going within the Roman system, as I understand it, which was some kind of mix of an empire and a republic, 
that, that the best case scenario, I think the ideal, what they're gonna be held to is, and then he details it. That they are ideally a servant of good is what he says. That they carry out the punishment on evil. Paul says that the wrath that, that, you're, that Christians were waiting for God to have, that the government in some ways executes that in the here and now against human evil. Similarly, that the governing authorities are meant to celebrate and approve good conduct is what he says. This is the ideal of what a good governing system does. In, in the here and now begins some kind of judgment on human evil and it celebrates and fosters some level of human flourishing that not necessarily has to be the Christian perspective. He doesn't say holiness, that they're here to, to bring about righteousness. It's, it's to celebrate and approve what is, what is good, what is good conduct. Now, the question is, what about when a servant of evil brings out wrath on what is good? When they celebrate and approve, not good, but evil. We have to read Romans 13 alongside Revelation 13, where the apostle John alongside the apostle Paul depicts those empires and systems which do not follow the Romans 13 portrait. They become like beasts, these mega monsters that trample and stomp on everything and eat people alive and that they will be destroyed by God in the end. And so what Paul, alongside with John is simply saying is that an empire's beastly rule does not negate their status as God's servant. In fact, their beastly rule will be the judgment for the fact that they've been entrusted with that sort of power. And so he calls for this, when we get into this moment, this subjection to them, that even a broken clock is still right twice a day. And so Paul is, I mean, there's so much at work here. Like I said, a full sermon. At the same time here, we'll do this and then we'll move into the subjection stuff. At the same time, this is huge. Paul calling the governing authorities, God's servant or instituted by God is in the ears of Roman Christians would have been a subversive critique of Caesar. Caesar proclaimed himself as divine, as a God. Paul says, yeah, he doesn't have any authority other than what God has given him in this time and he's gonna hold them accountable for. He's not God. At best, he's his, his servant and he's gonna be held account for what he does with it. And even more than that, Caesar, as claiming to be divine, he called for his citizens obedience and allegiance and worship. And that's precisely what Paul does not say they are to give him. And so that's what we get into with the subjection thing here, where Paul twice says that Christians are to be in subjection to the uh, governing authorities. What he doesn't say or mean by this is that you are obedient always to the governing authorities. Unlike some slave owners wanted to misuse Romans 13 to say, yeah, we're the governing authorities and you're our slaves. So Romans 13 says, you need to not just be subject, but you need to obey us. Paul could have used a different word there. And throughout the book of Romans, the word obey is a completely different word. And that obedience is never dictated as being given to Rome or to Caesar. It is always and only to the true king of all things, Jesus. Similarly, Paul does not call for us to give our loyalty or our allegiance to the governing authorities. Unlike what Nazi Germany would have, um, how they misused this text. Well, you know, whatever's going on and what we're doing, we're the governing authorities. And so you need to be loyal to us. You need to be allegiant to us. Paul could have used a different word if that's what he was trying to call for. But 
Throughout the book, we find allegiance and loyalty, or as it's translated often, faith is given not to the state, but always to the person of Jesus Christ, our true King. Similarly, Paul does not call for us, unlike Caesar may want to give worship, like some forms of nationalism want to get out of Romans 13. That's another word. And worship in Romans is only given to God's son, Jesus Christ, and not Caesar. So by calling for the Romans to give subjection to the governing authorities, he, yes, is giving a difficult command, but he's also subverting the whole system at the same time. By calling us to subjection, Paul uses this compound word in the Greek he's writing in, hupotasso. It's really fun to say. It's this combination of hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means order. And so a literal translation is he could just be saying, let every person order themselves under the governing authorities. So what does it mean to order yourself under the governing authorities? Well, I think it's really helpful just to consider what does resist mean? Because that seems to be the opposite of whatever order yourself under means. And the reality is, is that order yourself under subjection and resist, we miss it in translation, but they are based in the same root word. So Paul says, be subject, hupotasso yourselves and do not resist, antitasso, order against yourselves, against the governing authorities. So what's Paul doing? Let's set aside subjection and deal with the resistance for a moment. Paul is forbidding Christians to participate in riots, in war against the the governing authorities, in violent revolution, and in taking up the sword. Like he just said a moment ago, not to take vengeance into your own hands. And the reason why Paul is saying this is because as a group of both Gentile and Jewish Christians, these sort of movements have been happening within Rome. You can go back and look at a history of Rome. Right around 55, 56 AD, when this letter was written, there were giant tax riots that were happening among the Roman citizens. And also there was huge amounts of um, upheaval going on within the Jewish community in Rome, large in part because of the conversations around Jesus being the Messiah of Israel and now the King of the world. So Paul is saying, I don't care what civilization, what the city is doing against the governing authorities, you do not pick up the sword, you do not go into violence. In doing this, he's just restating the earlier command we looked at back in verse 12. But now he's applying it to the state. Repay no one evil for evil, right? There's the resist, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So to submit, is to do what's honorable in the sight of the governing authorities. Pay your taxes, give your revenue, respect and honor as it's owed. In as much as the laws of the land, what is honorable in the sight of all is a way we could say that, complements our obedience to Jesus, Paul simply seems to say, yeah, render it, give it. As Jesus would say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to the Lord what is the Lord's. But when the laws of the land, and I don't wanna to spend too much time on this, maybe that you can bring it up in the Q&A. When the laws of the land force disobedience to Jesus, as Christians, we are pushed into the direction of what we could call civil disobedience, not anarchy, not upheaval, civil disobedience. I'm not going to participate. I'm going to stand apart from and in some way against this, but I'm not going to, there's not gonna be violent revolution. You can find examples of this in Peter and Paul in the New Testament of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego of Daniel and Esther throughout the Old Testament. And even in the cases of this, when we we do civil disobedience because the state is enforcing something that runs counter to our deepest allegiance, which is to Jesus, we don't pick up the sword, we don't disobey, Oh, sorry, we do disobey, but we disobey peaceably, honorably, 
respectfully and violently, come what, non-violently, <laughs> come what may. So all of this comes together is Paul is laying out subversive submission. It is countercultural and even counterintuitive for many of us. Well, what about in these sorts of cases? And what about in those sorts of cases? We could talk about that. You know, Q and A, let's, let's, let's geek out together. We'll have some fun. But the reality is that this, this ethic that Paul sets forward here is how the Roman church that Paul's writing to in a couple of generations overturned Rome itself even as Rome itself became more beastly, feeding the Roman church to the lions. The reality is is that the the, the Roman church, what Paul is calling for us as a church to consider is that we enter into the movement of justice in our allegiance to Jesus, all the way up to our own martyrdom and death, but never to the death of others. And you may think this is counterintuitive. You may think that this doesn't work. The reality is, is that right now we can't get on a plane and go there, but if we wanted to, if we want to take a plane and go to Rome, we could pay, you know, a few, a few dollars and we could tour the empty and slowly falling apart Colosseums of Rome. We could go on tours and see all of the ancient architecture, how beautiful it was, but it's just, it's just nothing but a tourist attraction anymore. Meanwhile, right now, billions of us all around the world are following the resurrected and ruling King Jesus. You may disagree with the tactics, but you can't disagree with history. To this day, people all over the world, we name our sons after the martyred saints and we name our dogs after the governing authorities of Rome, Nero and Caesar and Brutus. It works. As challenging as it is, and as much as it doesn't think, we may not think it does. What Paul says later in 1 Corinthians is that what seems like foolishness to us is actually the wisdom of God at work. Now, All of this is how we, alongside the Roman church, enter into the history of being a people who through our justice overcome evil with good. Now, maybe this will be the part that I get emails at. Um, What about us today? We don't live in an ancient empire with Caesars. We live in a modern democracy. So what about us? So this is obviously we're getting into kind of Ryan's perspective territory. So take this. This is when I'm not reading anything from the Bible at this point. This is Ryan's trying to summarize Christian theology on this. Um, For us, as citizens of this nation, of a democracy, we are part of what Paul would call the governing authorities in Romans 13. We play a part in the government, being a servant of good, of punishing evil and approving and fostering good. Now, Albeit some Christians, and they've got, I'm not here to, we're not gonna fight over this, have have a good case for why Christians should actually not participate in politics, that they shouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag, that we shouldn't vote, that we shouldn't serve military or police. There's a a case to be made there. Um, If that's your conviction and where you run, like you're still a welcome part of of collective church. Actually, Douglas Harnick, his book that I talked about earlier, I would recommend his treatment of Romans 13 to you as a a helpful, that would agree with where you're at in, in thinking through that. But the reality is for most of us is that it seems as though we're not convicted in that direction, but rather one of um, utilizing and responsibly stewarding the fact that we're in a democracy. And, uh, and, 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 and so that leads us with a lot of questions. And so this isn't a voter's guide is what you're about to get. What I'm gonna give you is just four convictions that I think ought to govern uh, the way that we go about this. Four convictions. This is, just, this is Ryan right now. So take this with a grain of salt. Maybe not a grain of salt, but um, I'm not speaking Bible right now. Four convictions to consider if we wanna be good stewards of the fact that we are citizens of a democracy. The first is simply political participation. 
political participation. You and I need to steward this responsibility of having a vote and a voice of free speech well. If you feel called by God not to participate in the political government sphere, that is absolutely fine. But you need to figure out where you're at in this subject and then be faithful to the responsibility of what God's called you to. The kind of just being like, yeah, I don't really care. It's a responsibility that you have. So you either need to willfully let go of it and trusting God, but then looking for justice in other avenues, or you need to enter into that space to be wise within that. In our political participation, you and I need to be wise and remember that our justice, our work within the political sphere will not usher in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, there is a way in which justice when rightly administered points to the kingdom of God and can work to curb the beastly empire and even beyond that, the evil of individual humans against one another. If you want examples of political participation throughout the scriptures, I've got a list on the notes there, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Paul, but there you go. The first is political participation. The second, I didn't realize until after I wrote this, Aaron made fun of me when I told her about this, is that my four convictions are four PPs. Um, so maybe I'm in trouble for that. But the second helps you remember it. The second is prophetic protest prophetic protest. As citizens of this nation, we have an ability, a right to assemble and a right of free speech, which leads to what you could say is a, a right to protest. I would argue that Christian protest must and has to be prophetic. What I mean by that is that it brings a word of the Lord to a situation and to those in power. So Christians are to use our protesting when we enter into that space as a way to associate with the lowly to carry the vulnerable and the afflicted and the oppressed. If you want biblical examples of protests, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter, Jesus himself. And, and along with that is um, that idea of associating with the lowlier advocacy. We find Moses and Aaron doing this before Pharaoh. We find Esther doing this before uh, King Xerxes. Prophetic protest is absolutely an avenue that we can enter into. Um, I think we need to wisely consider what that looks like and to find how do we do this while also still giving what Paul says, respect and honor to the governing authorities at the same time. I think we live in a moment that says it's either respect or honor or protest. Paul, I would argue, is calling for us to consider what both might look like at the same time. And I think some of you guys, uh, we need to consider what our Instagram posts look like in light of that. But that's just me. The third is uh, the next PP, the next conviction as we consider uh, engaging with politics is prudent partnership, prudent partnership or wise partnership. We need to wisely consider how we in trying to work justice within the world can partner with both those in and outside the faith. So for us as, as a church, we, we contribute and, and partner every single year with Claris Health and Chrysalis. These two non-Christian, these are non-Christian um, organizations that that are working for different aspects of restorative justice within our city. Chris, uh, Claris Health, providing medical care and counseling and education, ongoing support to vulnerable women, um, specifically as they find themselves with an unexpected pregnancy, caring for these, un helping them think through those big decisions, uh, moving in the direction of whether that's a, um, raising the child of birth or um, 
adoption or ongoing counseling and care um, if a termination is the, the direction that they go. Claris Health is something we support on a regular basis. Chrysalis is a nonprofit organization too we give to on an annual basis uh, that is dedicated to creating a pathway to self-sufficiently for homeless and low-income individuals by providing the resources and support needed to find and retain employment. Not a Christian organization. That is a justice biblical issue that we can partner with them on, right? So prudent is partnership is going on here. There's a couple others that I've listed on the notes. If you're just looking for ways to get invested, uh, Westside Friends is helping do errands for the most vulnerable to COVID-19. Feed Culver is a uh, organization that's looking to feed the food insecure and restaurant workers within our city with food from the restaurants of Culver City. It's a great a little way if you're here in Culver or want to support it. Uh, no Us Without You is a LA-based uh, nonprofit that's providing food security for undocumented families who are unemployed due to COVID-19 pandemic because being undocumented, uh, um, they don't have um, uh, some of the um, unemployment benefits that many of, of us within our community has enjoyed. So regardless of what you think about undocumented, whatever, you have a, we have a biblical command to care for the immigrant to think justly, how do we care for those that are most vulnerable? And so you can have a conversation about politics and how that plays out. These are people who are vulnerable that need to be cared for. So no us without you is one worth considering. Now here we got, might get, <laughs> here might be the emails this week, is um, with, with the uh, conversation around the, whether the phrase or the organization Black Lives Matter. Now, this began as a statement and a hashtag that uh, in the later years grew into what is now kind of this uh, weird, uh, um, uh, not weird, but, but an organization. That's the word I was looking for, sorry. As it's grown from a movement and a statement into an organization, in being an organization, there have been other attributes and focuses of that organization um, that are just really worth um, looking at. And so the thing is, is while Black Lives Matter as an organization may agree with what we would say biblically is the dignity of all people based on Genesis 1, so much of what the organization then claims to bring and, and go about undercuts the rest of Genesis 1 and what it points forward as human flourishing. And so what, what this means is I, I'm not arguing for whether or not we should or should not use the phrase Black Lives Matter. All I'm saying is that we need to prudently, wisely consider what partnership looks like as we're looking to advance justice. So some of you wanna write me an email, that's totally fine, we'll talk about it. My ask would be that you would just check out a sermon on this uh, before you email me uh, from Dr. Eric Mason, his sermon, What I Mean When I Say Black Lives Matter. And um, let, let's talk about this. All I'm simply thinking through right now is just partnerships, right? That, we are, that we're prone to do. So maybe you're really, uh, you wanna focus on um, the fact that black lives matter and racial injustices that are going on. I would point you to some Christian partnerships that you can make, whether that's the AND campaign that's educating and organizing Christians for civic and cultural engagement. They've got a prayer in action uh, justice initiative that's absolutely incredible. And then a couple weeks ago, I read their Compassion and Conviction book that is just so good. I wanna send it all to you, but um, I can't. And then also we have um, Be the Bridge, another partnership is Christian Ministry. Um, that equips responses to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in the world. So here's the thing. These are all potential, and there are hundreds and thousands more of partnerships that we can make as we seek to apply justice. All I'm saying is that as Christians, we need to wisely consider what are the ends and the means that we're working towards? Is this a partnership that I'm okay with making? So be it that maybe I need to be aware of other things that are going on. In this being an election year, 
the reality is that you too, if you're going to vote in November, a vote is a form of partnership. And I'm not saying one voting one way or the other. We need to wisely just consider on national and local levels, what, what's, what's the basis here? And, uh, and, and is this someone that I'm comfortable partnering with? And now, even though I may agree with some things, there may be other things that I don't agree because of that. And maybe I can still vote for them, but that means that I need to be aware of and, and seeking how can I counteract these sorts of things. Um, I, I, I don't want this to be a whole thing on politics. <laughs> and uh, because, it's, because as we'll get into in a minute, it's a lot of wisdom. But the fourth, the, the fourth and the big one is passionate prayer, passionate prayer. The reality is, is that when it comes to issues of justice, God has a power that we do not. And so we need to zealously call on the name of the Lord whose throne, the Psalms tell us, is righteousness and justice. Throughout the New Testament, we see that this prayer needs to be constant. We just read that in chapter 12, verse 12. In 1 Timothy chapter two, Paul who wrote Romans tells us that we need to pray for the governing authorities. We need to pray for them. And not just for like God's wrath, as some of you may want to do, but for wisdom and even repentance as they govern. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. James tells us that we need to pray for wisdom so that we might know how to discern God's will in this world. And the Psalms consistently remind us that as God's people, we pray for God to bring justice. And here's my argument, is that passionate prayer is the key to the other three. Without prayer, we are on a fast track from political partnership to partisan praise and worship, which as we enter into that space, then leads to us uh, uh, protesting for unjust things in unjust ways, which from that leads to foolish partnerships that don't lead to flourishing and justice. As God's people, we pray and then we act. We pray and act at the same time. But God have mercy, God have mercy. If we become a people who act without praying, living like a bunch of functional atheists, devoid of God's power, God's wisdom, God's guidance, and God's spirit. It's, if you think you're gonna make it through 2020 and still be faithful to God in the midst of everything that's going on without prayer, uh-uh, we need God's guidance if we are to be a people who overcome evil with good. And this is not to shame. This is simply to invite that in our pre-service prayers each Sunday, and then in our prayer night that we had this past week, in the midst of everything that's been going on in 2020, I can just say, I, and please don't take this as shameful. I get that different things are, whatever. I'm just saying, it is heartbreaking for me. And it is um, scary for not just me, but for all of uh, the elders of Collective Church. When we see ourselves going through all that 2020 has to, uh, is, is put, placing before us, and there being a slowness, and a lack of zeal in our prayer. Um, yeah, yeah. The invitation, the need is passionate prayer, which then launches us into those other, our, our political partis, um, partnership, our, um, yeah, yeah, our yeah, participation, all those other things. Okay, that was all how we overcome evil with good. We're gonna try to make some fast space through the next two as we close. Justice is how we love our neighbors as ourselves. As we move out from the center of how we overcome evil with good, Paul sandwiches are overcoming with our love. In verse uh, 12 or chapter 12, verse nine, he calls for us to let love be genuine. In verse 10, to love one another as family, to outdo one another in showing honor. And then in verse 13, owe no one nothing but love and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in through all this threads together that our love for the Christian community and our love for those outside of the church go hand in hand. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints 
and seek to show hospitality to outsiders. Paul says that to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do justice for those, both our Christian and non-Christian neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. If you've been with us through this series, this is nothing new. This is no surprise. Paul is just restating what the whole story of justice has been saying the whole time is that love fulfills the command of the law. In verse nine, he says that love fulfills the 10 commandments and any other command in the law. This is the divine ideal conversation that we have is that to love your neighbor is not just to not murder them, but not to lend it interest, to build a parapet on your roof, to um, practice the gleaning laws, you know, for ancient Israel of leaving food for the poor, the immigrant, the vulnerable, to not pervert justice, to care for the quartet of the vulnerable. Love, justice. It's just the whole story. At this point, I hope you see, I don't know how you can read the story of scripture and not see this as being a story of justice at work. And so what Paul says here is that you all now, in fulfilling the law that Israel was called to do, but now through the spirit are able to fully obey. You are the family of justice called to bless the nations through your righteousness and justice. So chapter 12, verse 11, he says, don't be lazy in love, but zealous in the spirit. Serve the Lord as his family of justice. In verse 12, he continues to rejoice in the hope that you have, the victory won through Jesus, to be patient as you face trials, to be constant in prayer. As the family of justice, Paul reminds us though, that this work is not an individual task, but communal. It's our family business. And so in verses four through five, what Paul says is that though we are one new family of justice in Christ, we are not identical, but gifted in complementary ways. And so he lists these complementary ways that we reflect with one another, that some of us are gifted with prophecy, not just seeing the future. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but, but bringing God's word of conviction against injustice and idolatry, both within God's community and outside of it, encouraging God's people to love him and love others. Another way that there's gifting is a service. This is just practical service, whether carrying the tables to feed the hungry or the administration of material aid. There are some that in the work of justice and love are teachers that they're bringing the instruction and right interpretation or hopefully right interpretation of the scriptures and Christian teaching. There is exhortation. That is those who encourage and comfort and admonish. They are the hype man or the hype woman in the work of the church. Those who contribute with financial generosity, those who lead, that they provide administration and vision for the community in their effort. And then those who do acts of mercy, providing materially for the poor, visiting the sick, caring for the elderly and the disabled. Now, the thing is this whole list that somewhere else in the New Testament, all of these are commanded in some way of all Christians in some fashion. But Paul believes that within the church community, though everyone is called to this in some fashion and form, God gives certain individuals a certain gifting, a little emphasis on some of these things over and against the other, not against, but over the others. So Paul is portraying God as uniquely wiring each of us with particular ways that we love, that we do justice. Similarly though, that like all of us are called to justice, I believe that God gifts his community with people who have diverse emphasis of justice issues. Not that one is better than the other, that we're not called to one at the expense of the other, but there are some that are gonna give their lives to foster care. And that doesn't mean that they don't care about racial justice or they don't care about creation care. There are gonna be some that are deeply motivated to care for um, 
racial justice issues. And that doesn't mean that that's more, what it means is that God has gifted us so that individuals are bringing out different clarifications and different emphasis as we move together. The key in all of this is verse three of chapter 12, that we do not think more highly of yourself, that is your gifting, than you ought. We all need one another to rightly administer justice, to love our neighbor as ourselves. As some extra credit, I had, uh, if you did the Bible reading plan this week, you saw and I had you read all the way through part of chapter 14, where Paul begins to move back into who we are as a family of justice. Now, this is kind of more of a pastoral moment, but in Romans 14, what Paul is detailing is the fact that the Roman church is dividing and fracturing over how we apply God's commands about holiness to Israel in the Old Testament. And so what he says is that when it comes to those matters, it's an issue of personal conscience and wisdom in as much as you're engaging with the scriptures and following the way to be faithful to God. So he says, you guys don't divide over this. You don't despise one another over this. And you certainly don't damn one another over this. I believe that we are in a similar moment where we as a church are prone to division and fracture, not over the application of the commands of holiness in the Old Testament, but over the commands of justice that we have a community of people that are really trying to do the hard work of being faithful to scripture, but because their conscience and wisdom may lead them to different places, we don't stop at dialogue and debate and discussion. We move into division and, and even damning one another. I think the reality is, is that, yeah, there are some issues that within the church, we're not gonna be seeing eye to eye on this. Well, in those moments we need to do is help me understand how you're understanding the scriptures. And to be able to point out, maybe they're wrong. Maybe you are. But the reality is that as a community, we're meant to be working together with the application of the scriptures together, as opposed to damning and dividing one another. Um, So that was my little rant. Um, We need to acknowledge that we're a diverse community. God has gifted us with people not like us so that we may be built up together. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly, our political leanings more highly, our ways of applying justice more highly, where everybody just needs to copy me and vote like I vote. But with sober-minded sensibility, wisdom, help me understand how you're seeing this in light of the personal work of Jesus. And maybe they're wrong. Maybe you are. But the reality is is that we need dialogue and discussion, maybe even debate, but we don't damn, we don't divide over these issues unless there's an outright rejection of scripture, which Q&A, right? We'll go there. Um, Okay, finally, here we go. The final one, we end with the ending and the beginning, I guess, in Paul's parallel structure is that justice is how we worship God. Justice is how we worship specifically our God. Back in chapter 12, verse one, Paul calls in light of the 76, well, 74 mentions of the justice, you know, phrase and word and work of God in the first 11 chapters in 12, one, he says, you church, present your, that is plural, y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice singular. You give your whole, your bodies is the word for your whole selves, you all together, your community, you church are one living sacrifice given to God. Well, what is the sacrifice? What does it mean that we're not giving some, our work, but ourselves as a sacrifice? In the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, what happened was an animal would be sacrificed. They would be the not living, but dead sacrifice. And that this animal's death and blood was a symbol of God's justice and his grace. 
where the animal's blood symbolically was seen as washing away sin and injustice and idolatry, that this sacrifice somehow cleansed the community of sin and injustice. I would argue that this is in some extent what Paul is getting at when he calls for us to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. It connects to what he said in chapter six of Romans, verse 13, that we are to give our bodies as instruments or tools or weapons of justice or how God's people saved by Jesus are now, as Paul puts it, slaves of justice or which is the same thing, slaves of God. Paul is saying, present your bodies as instruments of God's cleansing justice work from sin and its effect to the best of your ability. And he says, this work is your worship. What do you consider worship? You know, us singing together in just a few minutes. Paul says your whole life, your communal life together, your life of justice. Your worship is both what you sing on Sundays and you giving your life and your time and your money and your prayers and your voice and your vote as an instrument of justice. In order to do this in verse two, he says that we must no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. This is a link back to Romans chapter one, where he talked about the pattern of the world being one of injustice and idolatry, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind that we might discern the God of justice's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. At the end of chapter 13, he equates this this transformation, this renewal of your mind, he describes it with the language of changing clothes. Instead of saying, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, he says, cast off the works of darkness, cast off the pattern of this world. And he lists the orgies, drunkenness, sexual sin, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, everything that seemed to be happening within the Roman church when Paul wrote this. These were the big sins that the church, that Paul's calling out within that. You think we got problems within our church. Um, we're not doing church discipline on orgies anytime soon. I pray not. God help us be with us. Um, but what he says is that we're supposed to cast this off and rather to be transformed right? By the renewing of your mind at the end here in 13, he says that this is putting on language of clothing and armor of light, which then he equates to putting on the very character of Jesus Christ. This work is our spiritual worship. Now, spiritual is a strange word in the Greek. It can be translated as, and many would argue that that's what Paul's getting at in verse 12. It's not spiritual in the sense of like, woo, but it's this word of reasonable worship, logical worship. It makes sense. So why is us offering up our bodies as instruments of justice, logical worship to God? Because that is precisely what God in Jesus has done for each of us. Literally offered up his body as a sacrifice for our justice, for us to be made right, put right with God and with one another. Jesus in his incarnation, that is God becoming human, associated with the lowly, fully, with the oppressed. He carried on, he took on responsibility for the most vulnerable, for you and me and all of humanity. Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve, to be a slave and give his life as a ransom for many. That is his sacrifice. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law through his love, even the love of his enemy, forgiving those who mocked, spit, crucified and killed him. Jesus subjected himself to the Roman governing authorities, never resisting all the way to his cross. Jesus blessed us even when we were his enemies. 
when we were running away from him into injustice and idolatry. And through this work, what was happening on that cross, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be in him the justice of God. That which has been put right and now is moving into the world, putting right. And not just in Jesus' death, but in his resurrection, God vindicates and approves and shows Jesus as the true king of the world. To follow Jesus is to receive his life, his justice, him putting you right as a gift of grace and the hope of new creation and the resurrection where we're gonna look next week as our hope and to put on his character in the meantime, to give our bodies as a living sacrifice as he gave his body as a living sacrifice for us. The gospel is that justice is, and now in us looks like the bloodied Messiah. See, God brought restorative justice for us through the bloodied and crucified Messiah, Jesus. The logical worship of this God could be nothing less than offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice, even to the point of martyrdom, as we seek to image and point to the God who offers himself like this, as we love our neighbors as ourselves, as we overcome evil with good. Let's pray.